Opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about genetic privacy, and we have a wonderful guest with us, who actually was on our show when he was with a different nonprofit organization. And he has just grown tremendously. He started out at the ACLU, and then he was with Privacy Work Rights. And now he is with a wonderful organization that is doing quite a bit to protect us, and that is the Consul for Responsible Genetics. You can learn more about him, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, but you can learn more about him at Consul, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, for responsiblegenetics.org. Let me tell you a little bit about Jeremy Gruber, who is a an attorney. He is president of the Council for Responsible Gen- Genetics. And since 1983, CRG, which is the acronym, has represented the public interest and fostered public debate regarding the social, ethical, and environmental implications of the emerging genetic technologies. CRG is the only biotech public interest organization that is explicitly dedicated to examining the best science, interpreting the results, assessing the implications, and communicating them to a general audience and facilitating meaningful, measurable change in the area of responsible genetics. Jeremy Gruber is an expert on the issues, and he's also an expert on genetic, not only privacy, but genetic discrimination. And he's worked for over 15 years on genetic non-discrimination legislation at the state and federal level. And he's played a very important and a major role in the recently passed Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act which was passed by Congress, as well as he's working on the subsequent regulations. He is the founder and executive committee member of the Coalition for Genetic Fairness, which is a group of 500 organizations that advocate for genetic non-discrimination protections on Capitol Hill. And most recently, he ha- he led the successful ca- campaign to roll back the University of California Berkeley's Bring Your Genes to Cal student genetic testing program. And this was widely criticized for its lack of due consideration for issues ranging from privacy protection for DNA samples and the data generated generated from them to the issues of improper informed consent and conflicts of interest. 
Jeremy is a prolific writer, and he has written on privacy issues ranging from direct to consumer genetics to forensic DNA databases. He is often consulted to testify before Congress. And he has been on radio, TV. We've had him on our show before, but this is very exciting to talk about this new issue. And actually, he had sent me, because we kept in touch, he had sent me the recently released Consumer Genetic Privacy Manual. And you can find that as, at his website at consulforresponsiblegenetics.org slash genetic privacy. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us all the way from New York. Thank you for having me. Well, you sure have had a wonderful career starting out with the ACLU. Why don't you just tell us about your evolution in privacy? Sure. Well, I began my career right out of law school uh, with the American Civil Liberties Union, and almost uh, from day one, uh, I was involved in working on uh, state uh, genetic privacy and discrimination legislation, uh, which quickly led to working on federal legislation, and I carried that work um, through my transition to legal director at another organization called the National Work Rights Institute, uh, where I was for a number of years, uh, and worked on genetic privacy and discrimination issues throughout my tenure there, as well as many other uh, privacy issues related to the workplace um, and online privacy. Um, and uh, in 2008, when we uh, were able to successfully uh, get GINA, the Genetic Information on Discrimination Act, passed by Congress, uh, I started looking for opportunities to continue work on genetic privacy and discrimination full-time. Uh, and uh, CRG was uh, luckily looking for a new leader, and, uh, and here I am. You're the fearless leader. I am. Well, Jeremy, is there something that kind of sparked your interest in genetic privacy? I mean, what was it that got you going? Was there anything special? Well, I, I think so. I think that, um, you know, when it comes to privacy, oftentimes um, uh, it's difficult uh, to gain interest in emerging issues because there's so many issues that we're constantly coming back to. Um, and uh, with genetic privacy in particular, uh, early on, uh, there were very few people who were uh, even noticing uh, that, uh, that this was becoming a, a problem area, uh, and, and certainly almost no one uh, uh, in the early days was even working on this issue. Uh, and it's an issue that is been, has grown exponentially. It's going to continue to grow because this is a, a type of information um, that is becoming uh, more and more widely used in a number of different contexts and will continue to do so in the future. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, the late Senator Kennedy uh, uh, likened the 21st century to the, you know, the age of, of biology. Um, and, uh, and I think in terms of advocacy and in terms of uh, privacy, uh, it's concurrently going to be the age of genetic privacy. Yeah. And, and, you know, you think about all these horror movies where you could, you know, someone sees your genetic privacy and then gets rid of you because your genetics isn't right or you're predisposed to something or you can't get a house, or you can't get a car, you can't get a loan because you're predisposed to cancer or something that would show up in your genetics. So those are all the, the scary things that people think about, but it goes far beyond that, doesn't it? Well, it certainly does. I mean, I think we're, we're really only at the beginning of, of really realizing uh, 
uh, uh, the different contexts that genetic information can be uh, used to uh, in terms of, of privacy, in terms of discrimination. Um, and with, with genetics, of course, we, we certainly want to make sure that, the, that research um, continues, that new breakthroughs are made. Uh, so as privacy advocates, we walk a very fine line between making sure um, that, uh, that the research can continue, but with the appropriate safeguards to make sure that the public is protected. Right. It's all that privacy by design that people are just not looking at, you know, that the scientists get so excited about genetics that they that they don't even really incorporate into the architecture of their scientists, scientific research or what they're doing, the the privacy implications. And that sounds like that's something that you guys are proponents of. Right. Well, I mean, that's true to to a certain degree. I think, you know, scientists um, are 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 most interested in furthering their research, and that's a good thing. Um, they are, aren't policy uh, experts. Um, privacy is not their pri- primary uh, concern. That doesn't mean they don't care about it, um, but, but oftentimes uh, that is not uh, what they're focused on, and that's why uh, we need uh, organizations and individuals uh, to be raising these issues, and we need policymakers to be paying attention. Right. So what exactly does the Council for Responsible Genetics do then? Well, the, the Council for Responsible Genetics was actually founded many years ago in 1983. It was the first uh, organization to uh, begin working on genetic policy issues. And we work on a, on a wide range of, of issues uh, representing the public interest in fostering public debate uh, about their social and ethical implications, uh, everything from uh, the issue we're talking about today, genetic privacy and discrimination, to uh, issues related to gene patents, to cloning, synthetic biology, um, genetically modified foods, and, and many others. Wow. I think of that movie Multiplicity when you talked about cloning. Did you ever see that movie? Mm-hmm. It's, yes, I, I love that movie, <laughs> the copy of the copy, and uh, that was great. But I mean, there are many times I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a clone that I could, you know, take a vacation and let my my other clone do some of the work that I have to do, but uh, scary stuff. So what is genetic information? How do you define that? <clears throat> sure. Well, I mean, to, to give everyone an understanding of exactly what we're talking about, each of us carries a handful of genetic anomalies in our DNA that arise sporadically. They're inherited um, uh, or it's a combination of the two. Uh, and certain genetic tests have been developed to identify these changes, whether they're changes in chromosomes, genes, proteins. Uh, the, these tests have been developed for purposes of ide- identifying these mutations or abnormalities uh, that are associated with specific disorders uh, in order to begin the process of trying uh, to either develop a cure or develop a treatment. Um, but genetic tests are really only one form of, of genetic information. Uh, the results... Uh, uh, of uh, genetic tests that family members have undergone are also considered genetic information. Uh, the manifestation of a disease or disorder in your family uh, or yourself, uh, more commonly referred to uh, as family history. Um, it can also include a, re- a request or receipt of genetic services or participation in certain types of clinical research. Any, any real type of practice where, uh, where the information uh, created uh, may indicate uh, that the individual has some susceptibility uh, to a disease or disorder. 
couldn't it also be more than just that? I mean, it could be like, I was thinking of, uh, I was recently watching, um, you know, about Hitler and, and what he wanted to create, that Aryan nation where they had certain genetics, the blonde hair, the blue eyes, the certain, you know, kinds of creation where you could create what you wanted somebody to look like. I mean, it could even be that, couldn't it? Sure. Well, there's there's many. When, once you, you uh, uh, become more specific, there are oftentimes many uses for ancestry testing, uh, testing for a number of other clinical uses. Um, uh, and then, of course, there uh, is uh, testing for identity purposes, which is another form of, uh, of testing, um, which is usually most often uh, utilized uh, by law enforcement uh, in forensic DNA practice. Right, right. And you and I were talking before the show started that in California, when you're arrested, the law enforcement can take your DNA just for being arrested, not even being convicted. No, absolutely. I mean, what, I think for the, the, what we've seen um, with uh, law enforcement's use of DNA um, is really typical of the growth that we've seen in the use of, uh, of, of genetics um, generally. Uh, originally, um, uh, maybe 10 years ago when uh, forensic DNA databases were first beginning, um, they were initially created uh, to, uh, for only for uh, felonies, uh, people who had been convicted of felonies, um, and, these, and not just felonies, but, but, uh, but felonies that were um, things such as rape, things such as uh, murder, um, those, those types of, of particularly uh, onerous uh, uh, crimes. Yeah, violent, um, right. Exactly. What we've seen now, though, um, is that as those DNA databases were being created and, and they first started uh, at the state level, and now we have a federal DNA database called CODIS, um, which is uh, uh, run by the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation, um, we've seen a massive expansion of forensic DNA databases to include not just people convicted of violent felonies, but people convicted of almost any crime. Um, and now they're beginning to expand to include people who've been arrested, um, even if they're not convicted. Um, and we're seeing new types of uh, pra- uh, uh, forensic DNA practices. Um, some of your listeners um, may be familiar with some of the recent attention around familial DNA searching um, that uh, gained some attention in California. Um, uh, where where law enforcement will uh, uh, will find uh, a, a DNA that is not an exact match to a database um, sample, and so they they look for potential family members um, to see if they might be able to find a uh, a correlation. Um, so there there's been a, a number of different practices. Uh, we've seen a, a huge expansion of databases, in particular forensic databases, in particular. Um, not just at the state uh, level, not just at the federal level, but uh, even internationally. Mm. Um, we now there's now 54 countries um, that have uh, forensic DNA databases. Um, there's an additional uh, 20 countries uh, that are um, planning forensic DNA databases, um, and many are following the U.S. model, which is an expansive one. You know, people who are listening might be saying, well, if they're criminals, you know, let them get their DNA, because if they have their DNA, then it's going to help solve a crime in the future. But 
What about the databases where, like I know in Minnesota, and I don't know where else, I hope it's not California, but where as soon as a baby is born, they take the DNA. What about those databases? Well, I, and, and I, uh, to, to answer your question, but I'd like to get back to forensic DNA databases because okay. I, I question some of the, some of the assumptions that, that people might make about them. But, uh, but yes, there's a huge growth in medical databases. Um, uh, newborn screening is one of the uh, uh, large growth areas. Uh, every newborn uh, in this country is tested for uh, several dozen uh, heritable disorders uh, at birth. A uh, blood spot is taken, and many of those blood spots end up in biobanks. Um, and, uh, and there have been numerous instances where the consent has not been reached. There was uh, a large case in Texas most recently um, where uh, a large database of, of newborn screening samples had to be destroyed because uh, none of them uh, had been obtained with consent from the parents of the, of the children that were born at the hospitals. Right. Well, let's get back to, you know, I didn't mean to make an assumption that everyone who's, you know, whose DNA is taken, who's arrested, you know, should give up their rights, because I don't. So let's kind of go back to that. Sure. I, mean, I was to, telling to you talk to, about yeah. DNA databases, uh, I think there's, a, there's this underlying assumption that the big, bigger is better. Right. Um, that uh, the more samples we get in the database, the more likely we are to solve crime. Um, that's not necessarily the case. Um, for multiple reasons. For, for one, the types of crimes that are routinely solved by forensic, uh, with the help of forensic DNA databases um, are the type of crimes for which forensic DNA databases were originally created, uh, violent crimes where, where biological samples are, are likely uh, to be left, um, such as rape and murder and such. Um, but forensic DNA databases are of no use for, uh, for many types of crimes, um, for which DNA samples are being taken. Um, and uh, there is no, uh, generally often, no statute of limitations on keeping those samples in the databases. Um, and those databases, as I said, are, are being uh, uh, increased to include individuals who are entirely innocent. Right. Who have been arrested but never convicted. And that's California. That's yeah. California and other states, too. And, and bear in mind that, that uh, alongside uh, many of these official databases, we've seen instances in many jurisdictions, um, where individuals, um, individual law enforcement departments are keeping their own private databases off the record. Um, mm -hmm. And we've also seen instances uh, where individuals who are, are stopped by the police um, are offered the opportunity to give up a, a forensic DNA sample to be included in the database uh, in exchange for being let off. For, and these are oftentimes for petty crimes. Um, so there's, uh, and this is all concurrent with the fact that we now have, uh, uh, in most uh, law enforcement jurisdictions, massive backlogs um, uh, uh, in, or in terms of processing samples um, because uh, we're, just, we're just taking a lot of samples. And, you know uh, that and, the, and the law enforcement does not have the ability, the means, the funding to process many of these samples. You know what? That was just recently in our newspaper about how our Orange County... Pro, uh, district attorney's office has got backlogs and backlogs of DNA and they've been trying to get money and resources to deal with it and it is a mess. So, you know, by taking everybody in who's been arrested, 
then you don't focus in on those really important type crimes, like you said, the violent crimes, the those crimes where that would really be helpful to them in the DNA. That's exactly right, and and it's and it and it goes even further. The the, the CODIS, which is the the main uh, national database um, uh, that is kept by the FBI, uh, the FBI has uh, has prevented any research on their database, so we actually know very little about. Um, how effective the the size of the database is uh, in terms of many of the claims that have been made by the FBI and law enforcement. Oh my goodness! So they don't even have any accountability. Well, there's no. I mean, no. I mean, they uh, the samples in there are uh, are are genuine samples. Uh, so so in terms of uh, of actually uh, uh, using the database for uh, for purposes of catching criminals. I mean, they're. I wouldn't want to uh, imply that that isn't a good thing. Right, uh, right, I think right. it's, a question, it's a question of making sure that resources are used um, most effectively uh, and that individual privacy rights uh, are respected. There's absolutely no reason that both can't, can't uh, happen uh, concurrently. And this, it's the same thing with, uh, with other types of genetic databases in the medical context. This is really not a, a one or the other type of proposition. Uh, you know, sufficient regulations um, it by no means would stop research, by no means would stop proper law, uh, law enforcement. And, and, it and might just make it more effective. And, and it probably would focus um, resources uh, to make them more effective. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's what I was just going to say. It would focus it to make it much more effective. We are speaking today with Jeremy Gruber, who is the president of the Council for Responsible Genetics and he has been a longtime privacy advocate, and he has dealt with the ethical and environmental implications of all of the emerging genetic technologies. He's testified before Congress. He's written many things. And, and just recently, uh, they released the Consumer Genetic Privacy Manual, which if you're listening to this, and this stuff is very Uh, important and I think a little bit disconcerting at this point, you might want to go to their website, consulforresponsiblegenetics.org slash genetic privacy. And you also can download this great manual that talks about all the, uh, the science of genetics and helps you understand some of these issues. So, you know, we haven't really talked yet about the discrimination issues. So let's talk about the genetic discrimination. Sure. I mean, when the the when you have obtained an individual's genetic information, and I'm not talking about you being a, a doctor or a researcher, but but any other any any other type of entity, um, that information is highly valuable. Uh, it, it's it can be predictive um, of uh, of future health conditions, um, uh, which can be valuable for a number of different contexts, um, and uh, to. To, to be honest, uh, many times the, the, uh, that can be exaggerated. Um, many of us, uh, I think, uh, think that genetics uh, and genetic information is dispositive of, of your future health. It's not. We're only at the beginning of really understanding how genetics interplays uh, with the rest of your body and the environment to, uh, uh, in terms of uh, how diseases uh, manifest themselves. But genetic information is highly valuable, and it can be used in a number of contexts to discriminate. Um, it was uh, certainly the impetus uh, for our work on state and federal legislation, um, and uh, 
and we have recently passed uh, federal law that, that does protect against the use of genetic information, in, at least in the health insurance and employment context. Um, but there's a lot of different entities that potentially could want that information. Uh, banks might not offer you a mortgage if they thought uh, you were going to uh, uh, pass away before, you, uh, before the term of your loan. Um, uh, people might want to process the DNA uh, of uh, politicians might want to process the DNA of other politicians. Um, people might want to check out uh, the DNA of potential uh, people they might want to marry. Uh, I mean, there's a whole host of, of areas where people might uh, use DNA inappropriately. Even um, employers, right? Employers oh, might decide I mean, that, that they... Was the, yeah. the, the two areas that were the biggest impetus for passing the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act were the two areas where we were starting to see discrimination at a very early uh, or very early stages um, in the process, uh, and that were na- employment and health insurance. Right. Employers uh, who would want to uh, uh, gather genetic information, um, both because uh, they were concerned about uh, the high cost of health care and didn't want to uh, take on or maintain employees uh, who could potentially be expensive, uh, notwithstanding employees um, who who might uh, might have to leave their employment and and they would lose money in the tr- in training and other and other areas and then of course health insurers uh, who were concerned about uh, about dropping individuals um, who might be expensive liabilities on their insurance. I mean we were seeing many many instances in both contexts um, for a number of years, which was the impetus for passing state and federal legislation. Uh, probably one of the most noteworthy in the employment context. It was a case that uh, that I worked on a number of years ago uh, regarding Burlington Northern Railroad, and I think it's sort of an indicative of the potential for how genetic information can be misused. Uh, in in that case, um, there were a number of workers who were, worked on the tracks in uh, for the railroad in Nebraska. They developed carpal tunnel syndrome from working with uh, heavy machinery. They filed workers' compensation claims. And as part of the normal processing of these claims, the, uh, uh, the railroad took uh, blood samples. Uh, unbeknownst to the workers, they took additional blood samples that were to be run uh, uh, genetic tests on for carpal tunnel syndrome, ostensibly with the purpose to disallow uh, the claims as pre-existing conditions. Oh, my goodness. Um, and uh, uh, fortunately for the workers, one of the workers' uh, wives was a nurse, and she noticed uh, uh, the amount of blood being taken as, uh, as inappropriate for, for the normal procedures, uh, and an inquiry was made, and, uh, and, and the whole case was discovered, and, and the railroad eventually um, settled uh, with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission um, uh, for those infractions. But I think that's, but that, that was not uncommon. Um, uh, it was certainly not regular practice uh, among employers, but we saw a number of instances of this, and, and uh, which was the impetus for passing a federal law. Yes. Uh, and that law, uh, Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, covers employment and it covers health insurance, but it certainly doesn't cover uh, many of the other areas uh, potentially in the future where genetic information could be misused. We have no comprehensive federal legislation in this country protecting genetic privacy. And is that, you know, was that brought up with HIPAA? I mean, was that really addressed in any of the HIPAA legislation? Well, HIPAA does address the um, 
genetic information in the context of, uh, to a certain degree, in the context of group plans in health insurance. Um, but it didn't, uh, it didn't, and does not uh, apply to uh, individual insurance market, and certainly didn't didn't apply to employment, and and it and it of course doesn't apply to to many of the other areas where genetic information uh, is routinely gathered. Right. You know, you were talking about with that case with the with the trains that there the blood was taken and it was really without their consent or permission or even knowledge that they were taking it to test their genetics. What about other ways that your genetic information can be taken without your permission? Well, there are many many areas where uh, where genetic information can either be taken without your permission or taken for one purpose and used for another, uh, which is often the case as well. Um, uh, everything from from your doctor, from a visit to the doctor, um, whether it be for your own health, whether it be for reproductive uh, issues, um, to uh, to uh, when if you if you use one of the direct to consumer genetic testing companies uh, that are proliferating um, to test uh, your DNA for certain conditions um, to uh, to as we discussed some of the forensic uh, law enforcement purposes uh, that we're talking about to, to participation in clinical trials for research um, there so there are a number of areas uh, uh, that we're already seeing uh, genetic information. Um, being accessed, and I think we're likely to see far more in the future. Uh, if you look um, at, uh, at at the strides that are being made in gene sequencing machines, uh, I think we're going to see a lot more integration of genetic testing uh, in medicine uh, and in other consumer contexts uh, in the future. Yeah, you always see on these crime-solving television shows where for example, law enforcement grabs a cigarette and they take the DNA from the cigarette or they take it from a glass. You know, even that they can get your DNA, right, from your saliva. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, um, their uh, surreptitious DNA, we call surreptitious DNA testing, is, is, a, is a real potential problem uh, in this country. We have no national law uh, that, that governs uh, the taking of uh, individuals' DNA. We leave DNA wherever we go, um, whether it be in our saliva or in our hair or in uh, in, uh, in our skin, uh, and uh, and that information uh, can be accessed and used. Um, uh, and oftentimes uh, it is by by law enforcement without a subpoena. Uh, in many contexts, uh, it can be taken, and it can be taken in other contexts as well. There was a, a recent. Uh, hearing this uh, last summer, um, uh, looking at uh, direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies, um, and uh, uh, the General Accounting Office did a sting where they contacted many of these companies, and they had on tape uh, where one individual had contacted a company and asked if they could send in uh, the DNA of uh, their girlfriend um, as a surprise. Um, And the company said, sure, send it on over. And uh, and we'll sequence it, and we'll send you back uh, a report with all that information. Ah. Um, uh, so uh, th- this is this is a problem. We have no no federal protections for it, um, and uh, and 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 you know you can only imagine uh, the number of potential instances where someone might want to uh, learn about another, another individual's uh, health information. So are there 
Is there something going on at the state level? Sometimes it's even harder to get federal legislation. What about what's happening at the state level in terms of genetic protection? Not a lot. Um, we, uh, no, we, we had a lot of activity uh, that went on for the last uh, 15 years um, related to GINA and the state laws um, around it. We now have about uh, 45 state laws um, that uh, address uh, genetic privacy and discrimination in terms of health insurance uh, and or employment. What about life insurance? We, of course, have a federal law. Uh, We have a number of state laws that deal with, sometimes not particularly well, but deal with surreptitious genetic testing that have been passed. uh, uh, But currently... There uh, is not uh, much legislation um, that is being um, that is being contemplated at either the state or federal level. Uh, you know, what we have to do is really build on uh, the success that we had with Gina uh, to include many of the other areas that Gina does not cover. Jeremy, you know what I've noticed, and I know you know this even better than I do. But when I've testified in Congress, they they want to hear. I mean, when they hear a horror story, that's when they're going to take some action. You know, when they see the abuse or they see something wrong, then they'll jump to it. Um, Otherwise, it's like, oh, well, that could happen, but it hasn't happened. Is that that, your perspective, too? I mean, they they do need that. That's true. But sometimes even that is not enough. Um, You know, for example, uh, a lot of attention uh, recently uh, has been placed on direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies. And, and for, for those listeners that uh, don't know what these companies are, there's a number of companies um, out there now where you can send in your DNA sample and they will sequence it and send you back a report uh, on uh, essentially giving you a report about your predisposition to uh, many uh, types of diseases or conditions. It can give you ancestry um, information uh, uh, and such. And uh, a number of questions uh, had arisen over the uh, analytical validity of some of this information, uh, and which led uh, to uh, hearings uh, over the summer. Uh, the FDA got involved and is now uh, working on potential regulations. There was a hearing uh, in Congress looking at, at these uh, areas. And during the course of those hearings, uh, uh, privacy came up uh, uh, in, in a few a few times, um, but it was not seriously addressed. Even though that's an, that's a serious concern, uh, uh, the the clinical utility of of a lot of this type of testing was uh, was a major point of discussion. Uh, making sure these tests were actually accurate uh, was uh, a major uh, discussion point. But uh, at the uh, at a hearing this. It, this past July, in front of the FDA, where I was among 20 people who testified about direct-to-consumer genetic testing, I was the only person who talked about privacy. Uh, so I think uh, privacy um, is, even with horror stories, uh, is still, and, and genetics is still something um, that uh, is difficult. It took us 15 years to pass Gina, even yeah. with, even with uh, dozens and dozens of stories of, of harm um, and privacy invasion. Right. I think you need to have a face or you need to have somebody, 
like one of the senators or Congress people or somebody experience that kind of privacy harm before anybody's going to really take notice. You know what I'm saying? It's, no, I think you're right. I, I, I think that's what we've seen even when we were working on identity theft legislation. There's things that we had to do we had to show Diane Feinstein how we could get all of her information so easily. So, you know, I mean, it, it has to really hit these people so they get it. And unfortunately, they don't get it. And we'll have to have some of these privacy abuses before anything happens. But is it is it only commercial companies that that we should be concerned about? No, I mean, I, I think that um, that the, the threats to genetic privacy can come from many different areas, uh, whether uh, uh, it be commercial companies, whether it be banks or employers or actual uh, companies that, that engage in, uh, in the use of this information directly, uh, pharmaceutical companies, but, uh, but also, uh, I think, from, from, uh, from government, uh, and not just in the forensic uh, DNA capacity, but uh, but many of these uh, databases um, that uh, that arise um, in the clinical setting in the research setting um, are are housed uh, by government or or partially government owned facilities um, uh, and the the privacy protections are often insufficient um, I think uh, oftentimes in in the in the rush. Uh, to to gather uh, genetic information for use in research, uh, insufficient attention is paid to making sure that consent is appropriate, uh, that um, uh, that individuals who participate are given the appropriate amount of information, um, and uh, and and that the private the actual safeguards in the use uh, of the data um, are appropriate. And and like you were saying before, if the data is collected for one reason that you consent to, that it should not be used for other purposes. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, w- it, particularly with medical research databases and biobanks, yeah. um, it's, it's almost impossible to predict uh, how those samples uh, will be used in the future in terms of, of research. Uh, uh, at, at, at best, individuals are, are told what the initial use um, uh, of that sample might be for, um, but but down the down the line, they they don't uh, often know, and and uh, and many people, you know, wave their you know wave their head and say, well, you know, most of those samples are are anonymized. Uh, that's not always true, um, but to the degree that it is, anonymization is is not is by no means a perfect science. Um, and, and, and health information, yeah. genetic information, is a particularly rich form of information. And um, uh, taking uh, anonymized information and re-identifying it um, is something that we're only really beginning to learn more and more uh, about uh, how to do and, and the actual limitations of what anonymization are. Uh, and as we learn more and more, we're finding out that anonymization is really uh, is really not necessarily everything it's cracked up to be. Uh, and we're seeing instances where uh, supposedly anonymous information is being uh, re-identified. Um, they, t- they were able to take, for example, uh, not too long ago, uh, former Governor William Weld's uh, anonymous health records were re-identified um, by, uh, uh, by researchers who were working on this issue. Um, so we cannot be completely secure that once information is is anonymized, it can't be re-identified in the future. 
And and we don't have access to all the databases to find out where our DNA might be. If we do allow information or we do allow our genetic information to be used for research, if we do consent to that, we have no idea how, how it's going to be used. There's no database for us to see how it's been used or who it's been shared with, do we? No, I mean, there in, in this country, you do not own your DNA once, once it's given away. You have no proprietary rights to it. Uh, so uh, once, once you, your DNA uh, is given away to uh, use in clinical research or, or goes into a biobank of any kind, uh, you really lo- lose any type of right to, to learn more about it or access it or, or, any, or anything else related um, to learning about uh, that sample. Um, and, uh, and, and so uh, you, know, the, you, you have no way, way of really finding out how that might be used. That's not to say that we should, no one should ever participate in clinical research, and it right, doesn't right. mean that, that, the, that the wheels of science should stop moving. Uh, I hope that they move, and they move even, even more rapidly than they have. Right. Um, but I want to make sure that, uh, that the appropriate safeguards are in place, not just to protect people, but the truth is, is that I think, frankly, you're going to see more and more people be willing to participate in science if they feel secure uh, that their information um, is only going to be used appropriately. Right, and that is transparent to them. They'll feel safer. We're, exactly. we're talking today with Jeremy Gruber, who is the president of the Council for Responsible Genetics. He's an attorney. He's been with the um, ACLU. He's been with many other organizations. He's testified in Congress, and he has been very involved in federal legislation to help get the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act passed by Congress, worked very, very hard on that. He recently was involved in setting forth the newly released Consumer Genetic Privacy Manual, which you can find at consulforresponsiblegenetics.org slash genetic privacy. And you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. We also have a website, KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, and you can see Jeremy's picture, his bio, and we even link to his website. And he's spending a great deal of time helping us understand all this really very fascinating, yet also kind of insidious type stuff that's going on. Jeremy, you know, I wanted to ask you, in terms of this this law that you passed, that you helped pass, can you give us a rundown of, like, a bullet point of what it really protects us, how it does protect us? Sure. So uh, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, or GINA, uh, which is its acronym, uh, covers two specific areas and has two separate titles for each. Uh, Title I of GINA uh, deals with uh, privacy and non-discrimination in the issuance of health insurance. Uh, And in that title, uh, health insurance companies are not allowed to determine eligibility for coverage based on genetic information, charge higher or lower premiums based on genetic information, or consider genetic information as a pre-existing condition. Uh, In addition, they're not allowed to uh, ask about genetic information as part of the application process. And once an individual or their family is covered by health insurance, insurers are not allowed to ask Um, about or use that person's genetic information for any type of underwriting purposes. Um, Title II of GINA, which deals with genetic discrimination in the employment context, uh, makes it an unlawful employment practice for an employer 
to fail or refuse to hire or discharge or otherwise discriminate in any way against employee uh, in terms of uh, their employment. Um, and, uh, and it also prevents uh, employers uh, to access uh, genetic information, uh, whether by requesting, requiring, or purchasing it uh, with respect to an employee or, or any family member of the employee as well. And a lot of employers are self self-insured. So they might have access to that kind of information, especially if they're maybe considering promoting someone. You know, you wouldn't want them to, to deny them a promotion because they're predisposed to some genetic, you know, some disease that would show up in their genetics. So even if they're self-insured, they cannot look at this stuff, right? Right. All employers are covered um, uh, under GINA, whether they are self-insured um, or not. Uh, it makes no no exceptions. It does lay out uh, some s- specific exceptions um, in the employment context. Uh, there are no exceptions in the insurance context, but there are some in the employment context. Most of them are, are rather straightforward um, and, uh, and matter of fact. Uh, an employer um, who, uh, what the language of the statute says, inadvertently requests um, family history, um, uh, is accepted. These are the types of situations where an employer, uh, we call them the water cooler exception, where an employer might ask an employer, an employee how they're doing. An employee might tell the employer, well, I, you know, I'm not doing too well. I just got back from the doctor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those types of situations where an employer um, didn't ask for genetic information but is being given it by an employee, um, that, that's an exception. There's, there's exceptions um, when the employer is offering uh, health uh, health services to employees, like a wellness program, though uh, employees uh, in that situation have a lot of control over uh, whether or not they decide uh, to give an employer that information. It's entirely under the employee's control. Um, and there are some other minor exceptions uh, as well. Um, but um, there are no exceptions for discrimination in GINA, only, only for access to information under very limited circumstances. So is there a private right of action? Yes. Uh, in the employment section, uh, there is a private right of action. Uh, the, it follows similar uh, civil rights laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act or uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act in terms of, of how that process unfolds. Um, you have to uh, go to the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. They evaluate your case. They either uh, decide to pursue it themselves, or they give you what is called a right to sue letter, uh, and allow you to uh, to go uh, forward with a private right of action. Uh, the insurance section is, is slightly different. Um, it is uh, there are penalties, but it is governed. There is no private right of action. It's governed um, uh, by uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, which uh, which enforces that section. That's that's unfortunate. That part, you know, that there is no private right of action for that because, you know, you can't always get these major uh, federal agencies and to, to sue, and then they don't really sue on your behalf individually anyway. They only well, sue. Well, it's, it's, it's a limitation, uh, no question about it. Um, but uh, I think that, uh, that all in all, Gina, is, is uh, as strong a law as we might have hoped for in, in most respects. And you can go back, right, Jeremy? <laughs> You That's can go true. Back I mean, and, you uh, can go back. Uh, you know, uh, we the similarly with the uh, 
with the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was uh, relatively recently amended uh, to make it um, even stronger. Certainly, that's uh, uh, always a possibility with GINA. Um, uh, I think that, uh, as I said, I think GINA is a strong law, and I, I, my hope is that we can build on it um, for other t- federal legislation in areas, uh, in other contexts other than employment and health insurance, um, where, where we can uh, uh, institute uh, protections for, for uh, individuals and consumers. Um, and you got your foot in the door. You know, I mean, I've, I've noticed that on being in part of helping to get legislation passed at the state and federal level. And you have to get your foot in the door first. And once you get your foot in the door, then you can try and bring in other aspects that once they understand genetic privacy, you can bring in more. So, I mean, that's, that's kind true. of... That's true. I mean, there was a lot of education uh, on Capitol Hill that was required to pass GINA. Uh, and despite the fact that we, you know, that, that members uh, come and go, uh, I think a lot of that education uh, is there to stay. Uh, and GINA uh, represents a recognition by Congress um, that this is an area uh, that requires regulation. Uh, and I think that, uh, as you said, we can continue to build upon that as a foundation. You know, I was real interested in, in that uh, that campaign that you were successful at with the Cal um, University of California, Berkeley, their Bring Your Genes to Cal. The yes. student ge- Tell us a little bit about that and, and what happened. Sure. Well, in May of last year, just before um, summer began, uh, and I don't think qu- uh, coincidentally, uh, after the, the faculty uh, and, and students, for the most part, had gone home for the year, uh, 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 the University of California Berkeley announced um, that as part of their freshman orientation program for, uh, for the fall of 2010, uh, that they would be sending incoming freshmen a cotton swab with which to send in a DNA sample uh, to be tested for three gene variants. And uh, ostensibly, uh, this was uh, for a program um, that would teach about uh, personalized medicine, and this was a, essentially a gimmick. Um, it was a way of, of trying to get the students excited uh, about school and about um, uh, and about uh, the, the topic for freshman orientation. Um, uh, the problem was um, that uh, in, in their rush to, uh, and, and their zeal to, to push for this program, they really didn't give much thought or attention at all to many of the obvious, rather relatively obvious and necessary uh, privacy uh, uh, concerns um, that uh, that were almost immediately raised. Um, everything from uh, the privacy of the DNA samples themselves to to the information um, that was going to be derived from those DNA samples to a really a, a atrocious um, consent form that that uh, offered in, incoming students uh, a really a, a complete lack of appreciation um, for what they were getting into um, by giving up their DNA samples. Um, and then there were, there were some relatively um, concerning conflicts of interest. Uh, uh, initially, um, there were some commercial genetic testing companies um, that were involved as part of, a, uh, uh, as part of the program in terms of um, 
there being a prize at the end for students. Um, and then the main, uh, the, the professor who was leading this program on the behalf of the university had a lot of t specific ties to commercial genetic testing companies and a number of red flags were raised as, <laughs> as to his, his, his interest in, uh, in, in this program. Um, so there was a lot of concern. And, uh, and what I think really uh, raised uh, this to an all-new level um, was the, the complete dismissal by the university of, of all the concerns that were being raised. And these weren't just concerns that were being raised by advocates like myself. These were concerns that were coming from the faculty of Berkeley itself um, that were being raised by, by, uh, by the press all over the Bay Area. Um, and, uh, and the university uh, really circled the wagons, and uh, they met with, their, with the faculty, I think, uh, once or twice, um, listened and at, instituted none of the uh, uh, of the um, proposals that the faculty offered them. Um, they made literally zero changes to the program aside from dropping the prize, um, which was such an obvious uh, <laughs> uh, mistake from the get-go. Um, they also uh, uh, refused to divulge fund where the funding for the program would, uh, came from. Uh, until the very uh, the very end, and there's still some open questions as to why that was, uh, whether they, they might have had funding from one source and then changed it as a result. Uh, they were very secretive about the funding for the program. In well, fact, where did my organization uh, filed a number of, uh, uh, of uh, what is it, were essentially under California Freedom of Information requests that were um, that were, were not uh, followed by the university, and, and the university was actually uh, uh, slapped by, uh, you know, for, for not following those requests. So uh, there, the, the, the whole way the university handled the program uh, and handled the criticism of the program, um, they, they really just seemed to delight in the attention they were getting um, and uh, didn't take the criticisms seriously. Um, and... Uh, so what happened was uh, we mounted a campaign. We, we worked with many groups. We worked with the media. We, uh, we worked with the California legislature. There was a bill introduced um, that was um, going to uh, pull funding for, for, um, uh, for programming in this area. Um, there was a hearing um, uh, in Sacramento uh, about the Berkeley program. Um, but uh, concurrently, um, we had uh, been researching the program and had discovered that uh, the university was going to be uh, testing um, the samples uh, in a way that was uh, contrary uh, to California uh, regulations. Um, and so we raised the issue uh, with the California Department of Public Health. Uh, the California Department of Public Health uh, looked into the program and uh, agreed with us that it was uh, that they were uh, they were using unlicensed labs uh, for these types of purposes. Any type in, in California and many other states, when you're testing DNA samples and then giving the information back to an individual, they have to be licensed. Uh, they weren't. They were using university labs that weren't licensed, or they were planning on using university labs that weren't licensed. Um, and so uh, the Department of Public Health. Uh, uh, met with the university uh, and and 
university uh, soon thereafter uh, backtracked significantly in the program, and, and many of the original um, many of the original propositions for the program, personally identifiable information and such, were removed. Wow. So did they really go through with the program? I mean, did they actually collect? They did go through with the oh, program. Unbelievable. Um, but, uh, but a number of, as I said, uh, a number, uh, they dialed back the program significantly as a result of, uh, of the campaign. Uh, not, um, not, not uh, by no means oh, did they volunteer to do so. They were forced <laughs> to dial back the program. Um, I think uh, uh, it's... Uh, a great learning experience for everyone, frankly, uh, that uh, genetic testing is serious business. It's not a gimmick, uh, and it shouldn't be treated as a gimmick. Um, and I think uh, in the future, uh, any any entity that is going to uh, conduct uh, genetic testing um, is going to do so uh, with a lot more thought um, and a lot more consideration um, than, than Berkeley did. Now, what about their own Center for Technology and Privacy? Did, did the Berkeley Center get involved in working with you? No, the, the Berkeley Center actually um, was relatively not involved. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't, um, you know, I, I wouldn't venture to say why. I, I don't know. But that surprises um, but, me. But I can yeah. tell you that, that the, the Berkeley administration um, was, very forceful in the way they handled this issue, and, and I and I and I don't think anybody. Um, I think anybody who wanted who at Berkeley or affiliated Ber- with Berkeley who who wanted to criticize the program certainly fought twice before doing so. Right, right. They didn't want to lose their own funding, maybe. <laughs> well, we only have a few minutes left. Can you can you give us some tips for protecting genetic privacy? Sure. I, I think there is. Uh, a lot uh, of, of very sort of simple things uh, that an individual can do uh, to protect uh, their genetic privacy. The first thing to do is is, is to simply to read um, to read what uh, what you're being given, um, so you know uh, what uh, what what information is being taken from you. If you're involved, if you're going to the doctor, for example, um, and make sure that uh, that isn't in, in being used. Um, in a way that is that that is uh, that you consent to and that you're okay with. Um, Just give us number... one more because we're we're really running late here. Just give us one more. Oh sure, I think that it's important that that individuals are just aware uh, about uh, how that information could be misused and are and become fully informed before they ever release uh, their genetic information. Well, I think one of the greatest ways that they can do that, Jeremy, is to go to your website at consulforresponsiblegenetics.org. And then they can also do what I did. They can download that genetic privacy, that consumer genetic privacy manual, and that gives them lots of good stuff, doesn't it? It, it should be. Uh, we, we, we hope it's a comprehensive resource for, for the consumer, uh, and we really encourage people to use it. Well, we thank you so much, and thank you so very much for all the great work that you're doing, and we're going to have you back again to tell us what's going on very soon. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. 
Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests. You can link to their websites. You can go and visit and also download podcasts and write us emails about what's important to you in the information age. So thank you very much and hope you'll join us next week. Bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.